0: Welcome listeners to Glam City, this is our third season, can you believe it? Now, Glam City is a show in which we take you behind the scenes uh, to reveal the marvelous archivists, the curious curators, and the purveyors of cultural heritage who are working in galleries, libraries, archives, and museums across Australia, but particularly in Sydney. And that's right; that acronym Glam stands for Galleries, Libraries, Archives, and Museums. And I'm here. Uh, normally, I'm joined by Anna Clark, but she's off gallivanting across the world, so it's just me, Tamsin Peach, today. But I am joined. ...by Brienne Fallon. Brienne is the Holocaust educator at the Sydney Jewish Museum. Hello, Brienne. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, originally, trigger warnings were meant to notify an audience... ...of potentially distressing material to minimise any risk of re-traumatising the viewer or the listener. But the term has very quickly taken on an unfortunate connotation in popular culture... ...as a broad censorship device used to prevent productive dialogue and debate. And that's some of what we're going to be talking about today... But first, Brianne, maybe tell me a little bit about the Sydney Jewish Museum and um, what its history and remit is.
1: Yes, the uh, Sydney Jewish Museum. We just turned 25 years old, actually. Happy birthday. Um, we did have a fabulous birthday celebration, actually. There was there was much joy at turning 25. Um, did you have a cake? We did, actually. We did have a cake. And also those very fancy and very in vogue giant numbers, you know, a two and a five, which was fabulous. The Sydney Jewish Museum was actually started by the Australian Association of Holocaust Survivors. So that we know of, it's actually the only museum dealing with the Holocaust in the world that was actually set up by survivors. Um, And so in that way, it's a very special space because it was started by those survivors. And they really are the, the core of what we do at the museum. So... The museum is sort of this hybrid between a memorial and a museum together. Of course, we have wonderful artefacts created by our wonderful curatorial team, but then we have you know, the voice of the survivors right at the centre as well and, of course, the memorial spaces. So it's this multifunctional, multi-dimensional space of both
0: history and memory. So that's, um, that's fascinating. Can, can you describe a bit perhaps the memorial spaces and how they're yeah. different than the um, curatorial spaces?
1: Right. Um, we sort of have several main memorials. On the top level of mu- the museum, we have the Sanctum of Remembrance, um, which contains numerous plaques dedicated by family members to family members that, um, were perished, that perished in the Holocaust. And that's a very active memorial space where people come to um, memorialise their family members, particularly because a lot of them don't have grave sites. So it really is sort of an active memorial space up there. We also have the Children's Memorial. The Children's Memorial was established Um, by Mary Ziegler. Her father was a Holocaust survivor and towards the end of his life um, he let Mary know that he actually had a wife and a child that perished in the Holocaust. So Mary had a half-sister that she never knew about and so she dedicated that memorial to the children that perished in the Holocaust and it's sort of in the middle of our museum, sort of off the side. It's almost sort of You walk through the museum and it's sort of, you can choose to go in there. What does it look like? It's in a torus shape, so sort of like a donut. So you walk in and then you move around the edge in a circle shape. And there are artefacts, children's artefacts in there. But then on the back wall, there are lots of coloured backlit squares in different bright colours and each square has names of of children on there from the Sydney community. Some of those squares have photos of the children, some of them don't. Of course, we don't have a lot of those photos. People had to flee quickly and opposite that memorial is a large clear dish and um, water drips from the ceiling like tears and it falls into this dish and the ripples are sort of the ripples that these children could have created in society and they never had that chance to and then on the way out of the memorial there's a fabulous sculpture reminiscent of the piles of shoes of at Auschwitz. So it's a very um it's a very
0: emotional space. And so how does that contrast to some of the curatorial spaces because right. it sounds like some of those memorial spaces also have elements of Uh, presentation of objects and interpreting the past.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I don't know that they would contrast in a way. I think that our museum tells a holistic story. Our museum is in a spiral shape and as you move through the museum, it largely moves chronologically through the Holocaust. So the ground floor is Jewish culture and Jewish life. And then as you start to move up the spiral, you move through pre-war Jewish life and you go chronologically up the spiral until you get to liberation. So... When we're sort of moving through that chronology, you can kind of step out into the children's memorial or step up into the Sanctum of Remembrance. And they sort of all work together as part of the story. And I think the thing that binds both the tutorial collections and the memorials together is there's always an element of human story in every artefact in our museum. So you might be walking past a concentration camp jacket, but that has a story of the person whose jacket that was, George Grunowski's jacket. And so then you move into the children's memorial and there's testimony in there as well. So I think the aim was to always have it all very intertwined with that testimony that that memory as well as the history so i think it works very cohesively as a space so what does it mean to be a holocaust educator Uh, at the museum. Yes, so we have a fabulous team of Holocaust educators and um, we're nearly at 30,000 students a year coming through the museum, which is absolutely fabulous. Um, We mostly have students studying history in their later high school, but we have students across all, all ages and They come into the museum and they mostly do a sort of a three-hour program and so they would hear from a Holocaust survivor and then we'll give them a lecture on a topic they've chosen and then they will have a tour of the museum. For me, as a Holocaust educator, I personally think it's quite a... I think it's an honour of a position to be able to work with survivors and tell those stories and really try to convey to children... That we always say never again in regards to the Holocaust, but we're just failing. And so for me, it's very much about human rights. It's really about trying to, you know, change the world in just some little way. So it might just be. On the outside, you might just think, "Oh, they're just teaching." But for me, teachers at a museum, at a school, they're the people that are changing the world every day. So it's really an honour for me to be able to do that.
0: That's um, that's so true. That teachers are are at the forefront of shaping mm. our civil society. Um, but you must face a particular challenge at the moment in that that generation of Holocaust survivors are passing away, and what does it mean then to sort of interpret the Holocaust or yeah. uh, or convey those stories in an era when perhaps the voices themselves will be will be gone?
1: Yes, that's definitely something we're facing actively at the moment. We're very lucky in that we have over 30 survivors who still speak at the museum. Um, We're very lucky in that um, we have people who are 98, people who are uh, child survivors, all with phenomenal stories, very different stories. The idea of how do we move forward once we lose those those voices that primary that primary source is something that we're really actively dealing with we're trying to try different techniques of recording um full body recording all sorts of different methods to just try and keep that voice alive keep it alive and i think for me the best way i can do justice to those stories and those people is to not just know the story, is to know the person, spend time with all of our survivors and really know who they are and know what they would want me to be passing on beyond just the nuts and bolts of their story. What do they want me to take forward? So it's so much more than just knowing where they were born and how they were liberated. It's about knowing them as a community, knowing what it means to be a survivor and really getting that essence.
0: Yeah, I love what you're saying here, you know, because it, its implication is that you can't just uh, download a story to the, you know cloud and then replay it to people that it's a real relationship that's embodied and at some level when it's human and so mm. y- you have to sort of have a, a relationship with those people in order to then carry that relationship forward and, and and create a relationship with the students that that you meet in turn.
1: Yeah, that's definitely the case and as somebody who is relatively new to the museum, The relationships I've seen between other educators and other members of the museum and really the museum family as a whole is something that I find really inspirational and something that I've tried to take up in and of myself because it is really – it is a family and it's part of – it's all, it is history and memory, but it's community stories, and it's that, it's that essence of community and keeping that community spirit alive. I think
0: so we're going to talk today about trigger warnings, which is something that you know must shape your work every day, but I just thought it would be useful to tell listeners about the definition of what a trigger warning is. So Bentley um, in two thousand and seventeen described a trigger warning as an explicit notification that the material used in a specific learning environment is potentially disturbing, upsetting or offensive. Is that the understanding you work with?
1: Yes. Well, I've got that highlighted on my little page in front of me as what I think is quite a clear, simple definition of what a trigger warning is. Before we get sort of muddled up in the sort of politics of what it is, it is just at base, a notification that what is coming up might cause harm. And they're actually becoming a lot more popular. I've been noticing them a lot more on the news. TV shows like The Project are very actively using them. Netflix got a lot of backlash on the back of 13 Reasons Why, and now they're using them. There's one on the end of The Handmaid's Tale on SBS. It's, at the end, yes, at the end, which I think is very—I don't think that's the best place to put it, in my opinion. But um, there, it's just this idea that you need to provide people with agency to make a decision about the content they're going to consume.
0: So, h- could you give us a practical, like, example about how that works uh, for you every day?
1: Yeah. So, um, when students come into the museum, you know, they come in off the street, they put their bags down, use the loo, and then I'd sit them down in the classroom, and I would welcome them to the museum, give them a little bit of a history of how it was set up, and then I would normally acknowledge country and then I would say, as you're probably aware, you're going to be dealing with some difficult material today and it's really important that you look after yourself in this space and when we're studying this. So if you need a break at any point, just let me know and teach us if you need a breakout space, we have that available. And how many use those spaces? Rarely. Rarely. Um, the thing with trigger warnings is you would think it gives people an opportunity to sort of bow out, but in, I've never really had um, anybody need that sort of space. Sometimes students will just go out and get a drink of water, but the thing with the trigger warning, in my opinion, is that it just opens them to the opportunity to understand that this is going to be difficult and prepare yourself, and it actually it just piques the interest. Why is this going to be difficult? Why do I need to be thinking about it in a certain way? And it's just, as I said, it's about providing agency and... Consent. Yeah, and consent, yeah.
0: I mean, it's interesting because a a school student might not think they have particular much consent when they're forced on a school excursion, you know, as interesting as it turns out to be. Um, It's not the sort of circumstances under which they're there. But you said something just now that I found very interesting, that it it piques a student's Mm. interest. Mm. And that's not often how they're discussed or how they're understood when they're used in the Handmaid's Tale or other teachers. Yeah,
1: definitely. The debate about trigger warnings really sort of picked up in the U.S., um, with the University of Chicago and UC Santa Barbara. And on the back of those particular cases... What were those cases, just um, quickly? So Chicago came out as um, anti-trigger warnings and anti-safe spaces, whereas Santa Barbara went the other way. So there was sort of two different reactions. And on the back of that, the American Association of University Professors came out and said that trigger warnings were infantilizing and anti-intellectual. Basically that they cotton wool students and allow them to avoid meaningful issues they allow them to avoid things that need to be studied i suppose that would be on base our sense of what a trigger warning would do you know you say this is going to be difficult and people go okay i don't want to watch that But all of the research shows that it's actually the complete opposite. So if we look at studies such as that of Michelle Bentley, her work shows that um, students generally felt better prepared. They felt like it was a safe space and a more intellectual space because the trigger warning actually provided an environment, an atmosphere of it's okay to be honest, it's okay to have a reaction, and it's okay to ask the difficult questions here about what we're studying. So while we might think that it cotton wools the environment, it actually provides a more open and safe environment because we're being honest about what we're studying and being honest about as people how we might react to that. So in in essence, trigger warnings actually, they do what they're designed to do they provide agency and then they provide a safe space moving forward without people withdrawing which is i think very
0: interesting but but you were saying something even more than that yeah. it's not only do people not withdraw they are positively more interested yeah
1: i think that's because particularly what i see with my with our students at the museum you say this is going to be difficult and then they all of a sudden they it clicks this is difficult but why why is it difficult? Why is it difficult for me? Why is it difficult for somebody else? It really sort of opens their mind to there is a variety of reactions here between my classmates, between me, and this material can be interpreted and understood in lots of different ways. So it sort of just it immediately switches on critical thinking, in my opinion,
0: and I think that's always very useful. And I guess it tells us that a hard thing is a thing that people want to get into. You know, it's not a, a thing to run away from.
1: Yes, definitely. And I think in that way, trigger warnings actually, they actually almost allow us to look at things that are more difficult because we can go into them in a safe way and we don't have to think, oh... I'm springing that on somebody. It's a way to safely go into more difficult topics, in my opinion, and I think that's definitely really useful.
0: Yeah, and um, so so in some senses we're talking here about the difference between well, it's a continuum, not a continuum of consent, but a continuum being forewarned about where the direction of the lesson is going, and yeah. the, the association of university professors' response seems to be worried that this will be a way students can step away from a problem yeah. rather rather than seeing it as a way of drawing them into a problem. Yes,
1: definitely. And look, I can understand their concern because. I think the fear around trigger warnings was that it was political correctness gone wild, that we're just so PC about everything these days and this is just a further step in creating this sort of rampant political correctness. But trigger warnings, as you said, they're about providing consent and agency. And I think when we're thinking about trigger warnings and you said that continuum, I think when the American Association of University Professors was saying it was going to encourage students to withdraw, it looks students it looks at students in a binary way. There are students that want to engage, and there are students that don't. Whereas when we're talking about trigger warnings in a continuum, where, Realising that there are a multitude of people in that classroom with a multitude of experiences, with a multitude of of levels of understanding and levels of of interest, and it's allowing each individual student to be an individual and make their own choices based on what they've gone throughout a pers- as a person. It's not about students who want to be there and don't. It's actually diversifying our classroom in just the smallest way, which I think is always a good thing. <music>
0: Listeners, you are here listening to Glam City on 2SCR 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SCR.com or, of course, your favourite podcast app and search for Glam City. Uh, This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SCR. And please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Today we're here talking to Brianne Fallon from the Sydney Jewish Museum and she's a Holocaust educator there and we've been discussing this topic of trigger warnings which you might have seen circulating in media, Netflix, all sorts of places. It's a question that Brianne faces every day when um, she's uh, working with students that come into the museum. And one of the things that interests me is that the Holocaust Museum sort of has a trigger warning written on in its in its name.
1: Right. Well, the museum is technically called the Sydney Jewish Museum and we kind of have a sort of subtext of Australian Jewish and Holocaust history. So this idea of of consent and trigger warning in terms of the name is really interesting. You would think that By people stepping into our museum, they are consenting to see certain material. And I completely understand that. You stepping into a museum about the Holocaust, you know you're going to learn about extermination camps. You know you're going to learn about um, processes of migration and all those sorts of things. However, the history has been constructed in a certain way that there may be certain elements that you may not realise you're going to come across. I'm going to get a little bit feminist here. Um, (laughs) We like that. I'm glad. (laughs) Largely, uh, the majority of the early period of studying the Holocaust and this history, it was written by white men. And so issues such as sexual violence in the Holocaust are only really coming to light in the last five or 10 years. So people may not be aware that when they come and hear from a Holocaust survivor, that issues of sexual violence may arise because that is not something we really talk about in relation to the Holocaust. We talk about that in relation to Rwanda, perhaps. That's something that's that's much more acknowledged as part of that history. So while there is an idea of consent when you're stepping into our space, history has been constructed in a certain way that there are ideas which are openly being consented to and there are ideas that aren't. And so I think that's very important for us to acknowledge that, yes, there is some consent when stepping into our space, but we have to think about what people may not be realising that they're going to see or hear about.
0: I, maybe we could just tease open this word consent a little bit mm. because, you know, is it the right word to be talking about and, you know, to be using here... Uh, we we were initially began saying making people aware of material that was coming mm. you know opening up a sort of agency in the audience um does bentley talk about consent
1: she does talk about consent and she kind of talks about it in a way where she raises the idea of trigger warnings for specific things or trigger warnings for just in general. So, for example, you might provide a warning that this material may be difficult or you may provide a warning that there will be issues of sexual violence raised. And so she kind of talks about it in these two ways of there is implied consent and then people have to also provide active consent for issues that may not have been they may not have been aware of. So these, you can kind of tease out consent into implied versus active consent and how people give those two different types of consent. And so when you're providing a trigger warning, you have to think, am I warning them about things that they have implied that they've consenting to, or am I warning them about things that I don't think they're
0: aware of?
1: And how you balance that is
0: very interesting. And I guess much of human life exists, uh, and museum practice, exists mm. in that uh, domain of implied consent. Yes. You know, in, we walk down the street and we stop at a traffic light and yep. we are you know giving our consent to having our freedom to drive down the street restricted right. to, you know, every minute of yeah. the day. Um, but then there is this other class, which is probably much smaller, where that has to be made much more explicit and active.
1: That's right. That's right. And it's those ideas of um, that notion of active consent that I think I'm particularly concerned about. Because, I mean, if we think about a classroom of university students, for example, by selecting the course, they are giving implied consent to whatever is in that course title, perhaps in the course outline. However, if they get all the way into uh, week eight and there is a returning to sexual violence, a reading on sexual violence that may not have been explicit in the course outline or is hidden beneath an article title, we have to think that one in three of women in that classroom have experienced sexual violence. And so we have to provide some sort of agency for them in giving them the opportunity to actively consent to reading something that may not have been clear or may not have been very explicit in the initial moment that they gave that implied consent. So it's really thinking about this balance between discomfort and harm. And I think this is where the American Association of University Professors kind of jumped forward a bit too quickly. They were sort of Thinking that we're just making all education comfortable—that's not what a trigger warning is doing. A trigger warning is still allowing discomfort to happen without harm. Discomfort is necessary for intellectual growth, and but harm is not. And a trigger warning allows us to walk that line between discomfort and harming somebody. Yep. And
0: so discomfort is, you know, part of, as I was saying, of everyday life. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. We don't. We don't. We don't have the right to not face up to right. questions of genocide.
1: And and discomfort is about, you know, putting your mind in a place where you hadn't thought about something in a particular way or you hadn't even confronted that before. But harm is about, you know, I knew that that was going to hurt somebody and I actively chose not to prevent that from happening. So...
0: One of the exhibitions that is on at the Sydney Jewish Museum at the moment is what is an exhibition called Unseen Untold. Mm. Could you tell us a bit about that exhibition and whether these questions arise in that context?
1: Right. So Unseen Untold is our fabulous temporary exhibition that is celebrating our 25th birthday. So our curators delved into our archives to find some artefacts that hadn't been shown perhaps in in a long time or ever been shown before. So... They chose 25 quirky or curious objects that really deserved to have display. When we say 25 objects, it's more 25 stories because there might be a collection of objects that tells a particular story. This particular exhibition... Is, is more about our museum's history as a space, the things that have come into our collection with interesting stories. I'll give you an example. There is a pair of quite large bloomers in Unseen and Untold that our curators returned to their office one day and there was just a box of bloomers in their office. And so the story of that unfolds as part of this Exhibition, and of course, the large bloomers are on display. this particular exhibition the the material within bloomers, it is
0: of course, for a younger audience being ladies' underwear of a certain. Yes. Period.
1: Yes, that's very right. They're quite lacy. This particular exhibition, it doesn't have a very highly distressing material in it. It's more sort of quirky and curious objects from our collection. Um, so there isn't so much as a stress there in, in relation to what... We're going to present to the audience because it's more of a, a celebratory exhibition of of our curatorial process and our and our community as a whole.
0: Brilliant! And this segues very nicely into our glam slam segment. Glam slam is where we look in our diaries and we see what's coming up, but obviously uh, Unseen Untold is coming up. How long is that lasting for? So Unseen Untold, our Curious Collection, is on until
1: October this year and the museum is open every day except for Saturday, so please feel free to come along. And Also very exciting, we have just launched our new Human Rights Centre, which is a very um, fabulous initiative at the museum. It focuses on not only the interaction between the Holocaust and human rights, but also pressing human rights issues in Australia today. The other thing that's really fabulous that's happening at the museum at the moment is that we're actively calling out for for artifacts and memorabilia. So we're calling out for anything that's related to Holocaust from survivors or their descendants, artifacts that may relate to Australian Jewish history. It might seem like it's just something small to you. It might just be a letter, but it could be really a fabulous part of this history and part of our community's story. So if you do think that you have items that might be, you know, useful for the Sydney Jewish Museum collection, you can ring our curators on nine three six zero seven triple nine or email curator at sjm.com.au.
0: And some of that information presumably is on the website. Of course. Yep. So what's your website address? Our website is sydneyjewishmuseum.com.au. Brilliant. And uh, what's coming up in my diary is I'm going to the Powerhouse uh, to see reigning men, fashion in menswear 1715 to 2015. And you might remember that we spoke with Peter McNeil on Glam City, who has really been behind bringing that exhibition together in in collaboration with the curators at the Powerhouse. But this brings us to the end of the show, to um, close of Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, Of course, head to the 2SER website, which is 2SER.com, and you can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. You'll find me on Twitter under Cap and Gown. Are you on Twitter, Brienne? Yes, at Brie Fallon. At Brie Fallon, at us both. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you want to get in touch, email us at glamcity at 2SER.com. And finally, thanks to Brienne Fallon for being our guest today. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time.